I'll drop you somewhere in the suburbs. Untouched. Untouched in the suburbs? Oh, no. No, that doesn't intrigue me at all. Please? With pleasure. Uh, thank you. If you'll come with me. What? What do you expect me to do in there alone? I'm a respectable woman and I'm afraid. Don't you think I'm afraid? I shan't close my eyes all night. Well, this is one night I should be very glad to be with my husband. How do you know that? I uh, overheard your conversation in the bedroom. While I was undressing? You were everything I anticipated. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. This week, we are doing our last of our, we should have been at TCM now. Actually, at the time of recording, the TCM should have been over by now. We're talking about Samantha Ellis's pick, 1932's Jewel Robbery. I'm going to let Sam take point on this because this is Samantha's favorite movie. She has told me numerous times that how much she loves this film and that she would have been remiss in not talking about this, whether it was TCM or any other time. Really, this whole podcast has been a lead up to Samantha Ellis talking about William Powell and Kay Francis in Jewel Robbery. So I'm going to start with the grand question first. Samantha Ellis, why do you love this movie so darn much? Wow, that's a loaded question. I really want to share the story of how I first came to see this film. It, this is going to get so dark for a second, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> I would have it no other way. <laughs> I first saw this movie on what I still consider to be the worst day of my life. The morning of, I want to say 2014, like August of 2014, I'm in the hospital because I have a swollen vein in my leg that scared me half to death. While I'm being wheeled in for an ultrasound, I find out that Lauren Bacall died. I get the swollen vein taken care of. I go home and watch my childhood dog pass away. And then my family spends the whole day screaming at each other. And this is right in the middle of Summer Under the Stars. And it's William Powell Day. And to get away from all of that craziness, I start watching the William Powell films. And I watched one that I hadn't seen before that I thought was just okay. And then next was this movie called Jewel Robbery. I'm like, okay, I really am sleep deprived. This day has been the worst of my life. I need to go to bed, but I'll stay up and watch it. By the end end of it, that last shot where Kay Francis shushes the audience and the end title screen comes up. I'm like, this is the greatest movie of all time. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm only saying this because this has been the worst day. This is a total fluke. I'm sleep deprived. This is not the case, obviously. I just need to go to bed. So I go to bed and it's a while before I rewatch this film, but I'm like, when I watched this film, I said it was the greatest film of all time. I don't believe it. I don't believe myself. I watched it again. And sure enough, I still do think it's the greatest film of all time. I've watched it, of course, many times since then. And the reason why I love this film, I'm probably going to say these same few things over and over. It's just so sexy and witty and charming. And I love pre-codes as a whole. And I think this is, in my opinion, easily the best. You have some really strong dramatic pre-codes, but as far as witty romantic comedy pre-codes, this is just perfect. 
it's so sexually charged for an early 30s film so romantic so exciting the whole hour and eight minutes is filled with action and really interesting characters and intriguing dialogue and of course i'd be remiss if i did not say that william powell is one of the sexiest men ever that's about the summation of it dre clark what was your prior experience with jewel robbery k francis william powell i feel like all three of those things have to go together in order to talk about this movie. What was your background with this before recording? My background with Jewel Robbery was non-existent. I had never seen it before. I am familiar with William Powell because of the Thin Man series, obviously, but Nick and Nora Charles were a big part of my viewing life early on. So I have a fondness there. Although I've always had a funny thing with William Powell because I find him like many actors. I'm delighted he existed when he did because he would not be a leading man today. He has character actor face and those guys don't get a shot anymore in lead roles unless he got weirdly buff or something which would not suit him at all. So this was a brand new introduction to me. Kay Francis I knew. I'm trying to think of what I would have seen her in first. I feel like she's been in so many things and you guys would actually probably know. Maybe Secrets of an Actress? Something like that? Was she in Give Me Your Heart? She was in a movie called Always in My Heart. Okay. With Walter Houston. Her her World War II films, which was obviously a much different era than this. I don't have a deep-seated Kay Francis thing, which I know Samantha does. And it's very funny because I look at her and I think of you, Samantha. So it was tied in. Yes. So this was a brand new movie. I come at this from a very weird angle in that... I saw a lot of William Powell movies before I saw this. I love William Powell. I think he's a very underrated performer in the sense that he seems so heavily ingrained in the 1930s, especially with the emphasis on drinking and revelry. But he had that elegant refinement that feels so perfectly suited to the 1940s. I think a lot of what he does best is shine in comedy. And at the same time, I had also seen Trouble in Paradise before I had seen Jewel Robbery, which feel like Trouble in Paradise and Jewel Robbery are one of those duos where you either really like one or the other. There's no middle ground. You can't say that you like both. Somebody could tell me that I am wrong. For the purposes of this discussion, those are two very definite films. So when I finally came to Jewel Robbery, I immediately said, oh, so it's less saucy Trouble in Paradise, which is unfortunate because the bar was already very high. As far as Kay Francis goes, I'm going to be really mean. Kay Francis is beautiful. She looks great in clothes, but she is a one-note performer. It's why she is best known for being in the 1930s, because her films tended to be all the same. The same plot, she plays the same type of character. And she plays the same type of character here, 
that she plays in Trouble in Paradise, that Daffy Ares, who doesn't have time for anything but pleasure and love complicates things. Love with a thief complicates things. That leads me to say that I think Jewel Robbery is just an okay film. I'm sorry, Samantha. It's okay. It's not for everyone. I will say that. I truly, truly do think that. It just is so specifically suited to what I love that I really have a deep appreciation for it. I love jewelry. I'm crazy about jewelry. I'm crazy about William Powell. Kay Francis, I can't say she's my absolute favorite, but I do think she's perfect in this role. And yeah, I can see the one note thing, but I think that this part doesn't really require anything incredibly complex either. And she is so much a part of the 30s and pre-code. And the 30s and pre-code is so much a thing that I love, that I love her by extension. You know what I mean? She's part of the family of pre-code ladies. So I, I can't help but really adore her. And, and like I said, I do think she's perfect for this role. And they do have, you know, she and William Powell share a really great chemistry here. So I want to say I disagree with the Kay Francis acting mention. I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence because the one type of character that she did, she did so well, in my opinion, this exact role. I think she really pulls it off. And there are a lot of classic film stars who could really only play one type of character and made a career out of it, a great career out of it. And I think she's probably one of them, though she does shine in some dramatic films as well. Like always in my heart, you know, she plays like an older mom character and and it's definitely there's more emotion to it than something like this. My thought on her acting is that in specifically in this film, I think she did a fantastic job, if only because I do not know the last time I loathed a character more, a female character, than probably Scarlett O'Hara. I hated this woman. I hated her. I thought she was so vacuous, so selfish, so self-centered, and I didn't find it fun at all. It's introduced in such a beautiful way. Like they're in this incredible mansion and she's in this bubble bath and she has all this attendance. And there is a really like nice bubbly delightfulness through the whole thing that's just sort of flippant and irreverent. However, and this could entirely be shaded by the current situations we find ourselves, but the fact that this woman, it was just so openly cooked in that she is an adulterer and she is married to this man for his money and she's completely has zero sensitivity for any other single human's thoughts or emotions, how they're going through the world. She is the most shallow thing I've ever seen portrayed and they don't try and give her. She has like a few moments where she kind of pauses and is like, oh, the secret to all of it, the secret hardship is I'm also terribly bored. And I'm like, you're a garbage monster. And I really wanted this movie to end up with her being arrested. And so that definitely shaded it. But I will credit Kay Francis because I fully believed her as this vacuous, horrible human. And she did look phenomenal. I will back that up. <laughs> well, I will say that this movie did only get mixed reviews. Wikipedia calls them lukewarm, with the New York Times pretty much blaming Kay Francis for the reason why this movie didn't work, saying, quote, her performance is one in which her usual intelligence and sincerity 
are strangely absent, which I think goes to what you were saying. And you might have hit the nail on the head because when movies are fine to me, I always get nervous because I can't form an opinion about them. And that's how Jewel Robbery is. There's nothing intrinsically bad about this movie. It's just very pedestrian to me. And I'll throw out the plot really quick because we, we've gone 13 minutes into this episode without talking about what the plot is. But Kay Francis plays a woman appropriately named Baroness Terry, who is devoted to this life of boredom and hedonism. She has a husband, but she doesn't really like him because he's boring. So she has numerous affairs and she goes to a jewelry shop to purchase a diamond ring and a thief referred to only as the thief played by William Powell and his gang show up and rob the jewelry store, get the head of the shop high on pot (laughs) and locks everybody into the safe and takes Terry's 28 karat diamond ring. But with all that robbery and scaredness comes love because Terry finds the thief to be incredibly hot. And she decides that this is the relationship she's super into. And through the movie's very brief runtime, it's only about uh, an hour and eight minutes, they fall in love and go through this back and forth of he returns the ring, but they can't say that the ring is back because obviously it would implicate her in some way. And it's this kind of handoff of the, the jewelry in the hopes of him getting away, her getting away with him, uh, all of that. But to go back to what Drea was saying about Kay Francis's character being very unlikable, I think it's just because Kay Francis had perfected that character so much. It's important to look at the fact that she worked like a dog throughout most of the early to mid-30s. And this was one of, let's, let's do some counting, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven movies she made in 1932 alone. That is in one year, she made seven movies. And she did some of her most famous films back to back to back. So in 1932, towards the end of the year, she had this One Way Passage, which is another one with William Powell that's a weepy melodrama romance. And then she did Trouble in Paradise, where she plays pretty much the same character. But in Trouble in Paradise... And I apologize because I'm going to compare Trouble in Paradise to this movie a lot because they are practically the same. In that film, as Madame Collet, she also has that snobbery to her, but it is tempered by the thief's mall, played by Miriam Hopkins, who is in love with the main thief, played by Herbert Marshall. And she puts Kay Francis's character in her place, tells her that she just uses men and to fill the void in her life. And she's not really happy. I mean, there's some there's a class distinction that is brought to bear. And even though, you know, the thief in this movie is obviously lesser class because he's thieving or maybe he's not. I mean, you can't tell a lot of backstory in 68 minutes. And here there's just nothing to temper her character from looking like a rich, selfish person. I oh, man, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. I don't dislike her character. (laughs) That's why we have all three of us here, because that's that's what works. So continue. I'll tell you why. Here's my thing with it. Number one, I really don't think that this is a movie where I attempt to read too much into that. I more focus on their interactions instead of what they're really like underneath the surface. 
But my thing with that is, and, and I think it's, um, it really ties into film history because this is such an escapist film. And in a lot of these movies, I, I believe we've discussed this with the unaired My Men Godfrey episode. Throughout the 30s, you had these movies about rich people and rich people's problems. And I feel like this very much fits in with that. Yes, she definitely has irredeemable qualities, but at the same time, we're kind of, our eye is distracted by all of this wealth. She's, I don't know, she reminds me so much of me, at least how I would be if I were a rich heiress in that situation. So it's hard to dislike her. And and you can also go as far as saying like Drea and your kind of summation of her, that made me think of Gaston uh, in Gigi, Louis Jordan's character, because, you know, he is also a rich person who is bored with their life. And I don't really find his character super unlikable either. So I don't know. I don't know. I I will say, Samantha, I have no desire to talk you out of loving this movie or <laughs> what it has brought to you, because yes. I, think, I think that's as important as anything else is. Like, obviously, we all bring different perspectives and analysis to films. No, but that's me- what I love. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I never even thought of her character as like, it, it also makes me think of like the 1938 Marie Antoinette, because that makes the rich totally oblivious Marie Antoinette into a likable person and I feel like this is sort of (laughs) that is an amazing comparison because Marie Antoinette is a historical garbage person (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna say that makes a lot of sense too because much like Norma Shearer K. Francis is fairly one note was accused of not being able to act although I like K. Francis more than I like Norma Shearer I'm sorry Samantha (laughs) (laughs) that probably hurts me more because I like Norma Shearer more than I like Kay Francis. <laughs> I do not like Norma Shearer. Oh my gosh. Um, so, but but going back to this, and, and you brought up Gigi too, which there's not many movies I say we'll never talk about, but Gigi is one movie I despise. But to go back to, to what we were talking about with, with Kay Francis, I mean, you're definitely right, Sam, that the time period is important. This is the continuation of the, the Great Depression and there's this sense of revelry. And I think it's worth touching on that by just two years later, the definition of a screwball comedy would change a little bit because you have the blind love of possessions in this movie and how possessions bring you into contact with love. You know, much like Trouble in Paradise, the concept of thievery and things makes people hot, okay? That's uh, literally Trouble in Paradise has a whole sequence about that that is played as a sex scene. And it's all based around the concept of taking things from other people. But the reason Terry and the thief even meet is because she likes jewelry and so does he. They have this mutual interest. And just two years later, by 1934, when William Powell would become most famous as playing Nick Charles in The Thin Man... That definition of hedonism had to be balanced with something else. So like in The Thin Man, Nick Charles, remember, is 
technically was just a San Francisco detective who married into wealth. He's known the streets. So you have that element of the crime with the poorer family members of the thin, the actual thin man and the concept of wealth coming to bear as so that series would continue. And also two years later, you have It Happened One Night, which takes wealth and shows it up, you know, against regular America, which was hurting. You didn't have this blind love of glitz that you would have just two years prior in Jewel Robbery. And I think Jewel Robbery kind of shows the limits of what a plot like that can do because you don't really know a lot about these people. They live and die in the frame of this movie. So all you know about Baroness Terry is that she has a husband, she's bored, and she really wants this 28-carat diamond ring. She has a best friend named Marion, played by Helen Vinson, who's also relatively bored, and they're looking for this grand romance. But once Powell shows up, he just becomes this jack-in-the-box that keeps popping up into her life. There's never really any stakes. Yes, this, the fear is that he will get arrested, she will get in trouble, but it all feels so twee. I don't know. That's not the right word I want to use, but that's how it feels. It doesn't feel like there's going to be this grand get at the end, especially at the end when, when we'll talk about the ending on its own separately. But it feels very neat. And maybe that's because if you know film history, you know that just two years later, that neatness and that order would not exist in screwball comedy. I don't know. I think it's really interesting that you bring up the friend because I feel like they are similar in a lot of ways. They both love the fine things in life and they both love men. But I feel like Helen Vincent, who plays Marianne, the best friend, serves to make Kay Francis and Terry look more interesting and prettier in my opinion, <laughs> you know, like there's that kind of um, theory, you know, if, if you have a, a B actress in the shot, then the star really shines. But I, I think it's th the discussion between the two characters when they're in her apartment after she gets the flowers is so fascinating because not only does it contain some really great pre-code dialogue, you know, like, what would you do if you were found only in your teddies alone with a man? Let the train go on. I think that's so, I love that line. It's so witty. But I love that the two women pay different prices for the things that they value. I think Marianne, you know, she can, like, it's obvious that she's supposed to be considered lavicious, but when the going gets rough, she's out the door. She's like, okay, this is too much for me. I can talk about having an affair, but if you're going to have an affair, I'm leaving. <laughs> Which I think is just really funny because they they dance around the subject. They talk about it, but there's never any actual mention or like showing of, okay, they actually did have sex. But meanwhile, Kay, she is willing to do anything for the excitement, the entertainment. And I think that's something that makes her really interesting. I think it's an interesting motivator that doesn't really pop up in film too much. See, I assumed that 
or I felt that the friend was complicit in everything and that, you know, when we meet Kay's character, she already has someone that she's been having an affair with. And then he spends most of the first act with her and her husband. And it's part of that world that I was talking about that that didn't set with me of, oh, cool. All of these people are cheaters and it's just part of what they're doing and there's no care. I, I did think I, um, not disagree with Kristen, but the tone of it felt more accurate to me of if you're having characters who across the board have Oh my gosh. And it is, by the way, I recognize me talking about the morality of fictional characters in a pre-code film is pretty hilarious, but these are people with very loose, non-existent morals. Like when it comes to things like monogamy or fidelity and there's something, I thought the tone actually worked for that, that the shallowness of their affections, like for me, Kay's character is an infant. She is, what is it? Like her, a repressed, um, emotional maturity and the idea that she literally is like ooh shiny toy ooh pretty like that's her whole thing and so i think that the tone of it and the lack of any feel of dire consequences coming their way has to kind of match that or audiences even more than me would have like a the disparate nature of her being terrible and them all being sort of shallow. And then if it was also trying to be serious, then you would have to be judging her. Whereas if you want this to be, you know, fun and escapist and just sort of have the charm and the bubbles come to the top, then you need that lack of consequences. Like I said, I wanted them all arrested or, you know, run down in the streets because they're terrible. But I also was never worried about that. And there's something to be said for the joy of not worrying about things when you're watching a film as a roundabout compliment as that can be <laughs> well i think what is noticeable about this film is i do think the runtime works a bit against it or there's something about the pacing that i think always works against this film because it is only 68 minutes and it's a very talk heavy film you have that rat-a-tat patter that comes from screwball comedies where Terry sets up her origins and then she goes to the jewelry store. The jewelry store scene feels like a very lengthy moment where they're stuck in the vault and you have this back and forth between the thief and, and Terry's lover, Paul, where it's obvious that she's not really into Paul, but she can't be overt about it. So you have this very long extended sequence. And then once that's over and she returns back home and maybe it's meant to mimic the excitement that comes from crime or something, but I feel like the movie falls into a sense of complacency after that. I think what you said about the film being neat is perfectly accurate. I think it is all tied up in a great bow. It sets up the action. It continues the action pretty quickly. It continues the chase. And it gives you an idea of exactly what's going to happen after the credits roll, all in 68 minutes. I think, and to touch on what Drea was saying as well, I personally like it for that reason. I like that there's not too much to really go over, if that makes sense. Of course, I love reading into films. That's like my whole thing. But at the same time, I love that there are movies that just 
exist to be enjoyed and devoured and appreciated like this one. And to touch on what Drea was saying, I think if this movie had a longer runtime, I think not only would they have dwelled more on what the characters are really like underneath the surface, they would have also honed in more on the consequences of their actions, which this movie was made a few years later. I think, uh, you know, obviously this movie couldn't have really been made a few years later, but they definitely would have toned down the affair and toned up. This is a thief who is going to get caught. You know what I mean? I think their morality would have come into question a lot more if oh, this had definitely. not been a pre-code. That's why I brought up like the years that we're talking about or the irony of their lack of any kind of moral judgment. And it's funny because they lack morals in a way that makes them thoughtless, not in a way that makes them like debaucherous. And, you know, like that whenever you hear about, oh, the implementation of the code was necessitated because Hollywood was producing all of these things that made people want to live lascivious, moralist lives. And it's like, no, I mean, these are just like shallow, dumb characters who are more like charm and selfishness than they are good people. But it's very funny to me to think that anyone would have ever watched a movie like Jewel Robbery and been like, you know what? I'd like to feel about the world like she does. Like, that's not why you're uh, taking this in. Kristen, it's funny you brought up the running time a few times. I don't think I was aware of the running time when I watched it. It didn't feel short to me in the way that films that feel short um, will feel slight. I wasn't, you know, in that case, because this story is just an A to B. There's not like a subplot of her friend throughout trying to get something out of her own husband, or there's not an ongoing thing with Kay's husband, who's like always trying to catch her. There's literally... The entirety of the plot is Kay's character looking for things she likes, if they're jewels, if they're people, and then interacting with those things. And because of that, as much as I found it wanting only in the sense that I didn't like her, but that's not fair. There's plenty of movies I liked that I don't hate this one where I don't like the character, but I didn't. I do agree with Samantha that the introduction of like further story would have made it that we had to see some interior to characters that would have let us down if we had to dig into them more. As it was, you know, the, the surfaceness of Kay and of William Powell's character worked for a lot of people because it was just in this flippant package. The one character that I have to bring up that I appreciated. And Kristen, I know you mentioned the the marijuana, the through line of pot, and that there's these fancy cigarettes that William Powell's character keeps giving to sort of law enforcement figures who then pass it along amongst their ranks to like chill them out in the high tension of the world's most low-key robbery. There is an officer who has he's like a security guard officer who has come on board he was this character and you guys probably are like oh that's blankety blank and then you know his whole backstory and god bless that's why i'm so thankful to have both of you but i loved that character if only because he reminded me so much of the foil that's in shakespeare all the time and it's often a law enforcement character or someone who's like made a fool of i know in 
much ado about nothing. There's a there's a police officer, well, their equivalent of a police officer, who takes that in Twelfth Night. There's the butler who's very in his own head. Anyway, I loved this random introduction of what I found as a very Shakespearean character who just was there to be a total fool. And you guys, I love a good fool. I, who, okay. If I could remove any character, I would probably remove Lens. But I definitely, <laughs> I also Perfect. see what you're saying. I do. I think he is a great fool, uh, foil, fool. He is a foil and a fool to William Powell. I think he's, he just has too much screen time, in my opinion. They spend like five minutes of this 68 minutes pulling him out of the well just to drop him back in again during the chase scene. And I hate his voice also. Um, I feel like the reason they show his character as much as they do, not only they, they show him as a foil for William Powell and how charming and attractive and debonair and smart he is as a criminal, but they also show, you know, Really, if they hadn't shown somebody as foolish as Lens in a law enforcement job in this film, you would probably wonder how William Powell got away with robbing jewelry stores in broad daylight. He got away with robbing all these jewelry stores in broad daylight because of people like Lens. And I feel like that is the purpose that he serves as a character. I mean, I think this in particular, because I know Kristen really loves like recasting films. I Every time I watch this, I've seen it a million times. But this particular time, I was kind of the gears were turning in my head. Like, how could this be recast? Who would play who? I would definitely replace Lens. I don't quite know who with just yet. For some reason, um, yeah, I'm getting all of the rotund supporting actors from the 30s. Like Walter Connolly is in my head right now. I don't know why. <laughs> I feel like he looks a little smarter than Lens should be. But And I was thinking about, I really was. It was it's funny we brought up Norma Shearer because I was thinking about what if Norma Shearer or Carol Lombard played this role. I feel like one of the two would bring more depth to the character, but I don't know if that would be a good thing. I want you to know that I just imagined Carol Lombard playing Lens, and I know that's not what you meant, but it was very funny. <laughs> very funny to me. I would love that. That would be amazing. Well, to go back to what Drea was saying about the runtime, I don't know. I think we're, we're always shocked when movies are very short because now 68 minutes would be a short film and not a feature length. That just doesn't happen anymore. But I always feel like if a movie can't hold my attention for 68 minutes and there's an issue there. And again, it goes back to some of the hardest episodes that I have to record or movies where I can't tell you what's wrong with the movie. It just didn't click for me. And I always hate that because that's not what makes a good episode. But that's where we are. But back to what we were talking about with pot cigarettes and, and stuff like that. I do like that there are certain elements in this movie that could have only worked in a pre-code. And just two years later, you couldn't have had those. And every time I've watched this movie, and I've been fortunate to watch this with an audience, but every time... William Powell's character offers Hollander, the Lee Colmar character, a cigarette. Everybody laughs because you don't even have to be a, a pot smoker to know what's going on. And I think that's the comedy that works best with pre-code is that there's no artifice to the fact that people were doing bad things. It's just 
we didn't make them a big deal. Exactly. There is definitely a superficial quality and a very flippant quality to this film. Like I said, it's it's a movie that you, you're you not supposed to read into it, in my opinion. Like, if you do, then you definitely are going to see the flaws in the gem, <laughs> to coin a phrase here. But yeah, I think it's perfectly encapsulated in that early 30s pre-code first world problems sphere of filmmaking. <laughs> and and I, I personally really like it for that reason. Like it does have the similarities to My Man Godfrey. It's almost like a, a My Man Godfrey prototype with fewer characters. I can't read into the film because then, then you definitely do see the issues. And I, I see where you guys are coming from. It's because I've never really looked that closely. And I, I love that we're analyzing it as well, because you do see, if you really stop and think about it, you see, wow, they don't care about anybody else. They don't care about the harm that they're doing. They don't care about infidelity. They don't care about anything. And depending on who you are, it's something you love or something you hate. I think one of the interesting things that ties into the running time of this is structurally... Oh, Samantha, I do want to give up the... You worked in a um, a jewelry analogy into the flaws of the gem. I don't want you to think we didn't notice that. I appreciate it. <laughs> you bet. Um, but this, this film, to me, it felt structurally so much like a stage play. Like, we're literally just going from different interior sets. And so what they're doing feels... It has that theatrical feel to it. Like, I can imagine this as a stage play in a way that I could not imagine a lot of films. But I will draw attention to the fact that there are a few really interesting in in all of that very, not sedentary, because these sets are beautiful and stuff. But there are a few small moments of sort of action and athleticism that are the kinds of thing that I was like, oh, that actually makes me want this to be more. The idea of, um, you know, there's this final escape on the rooftops and they always go across the rooftops. It's kind of amazing. Like I think of To Catch a Thief with that too. I'm like, you can't be a jewel robber and not know how to climb a good roof. You know, like they're, there's just hand in hand. But I like with this film and the ways that I could imagine if they had built it out more, they're, it would have been interesting if they had introduced a little more of that physicality and action to it, because certainly that's that's our our modern fluff. I find is much more in the action realm than even in romances, because for people who view things like I do, if I'm going to spend time watching characters fall in love, I want to know what they actually love about each other, not just that they're most the most attractive people in any room. And action films don't always care about all of that interior. The small germination of that in Jewel Robbery was interesting to me, the idea of these little action moments, and that maybe if I looked at it like that, because it's certainly not a character study, but the stuff it's interested in, you know, like I was talking about the procession of maids, even that had this kind of music musical and that theatrical motion action quality to it. It would have been interesting if they had leaned even more into that realm. I think that's so interesting. I'm glad that you mention sort of his getaway too, because, and again, I love that you know William Powell from The Thin Man, because 
it creates a really interesting contrast. And in my opinion, it also shows William Powell's range. You know, he basically built a huge part of his career around solving crimes and being great at that. And now here he is just as perfectly showing how well he can commit crimes. You know, he's like obviously the most fashionable, the most organized jewel thief I've ever seen on screen. He's definitely like, you know, you compare like the Pink Panther and like they can sneak around all they want, but like William Powell does it like the smart way. He's just so, so brilliant as a criminal. Although I will, I will say he's not that brilliant because he fully does the thing where he explains his entire procedure to them as he's robbing. I'm like, do you not want to do that anymore? Like, he's like, oh, we always put attractive blondes on the corners and then the (laughs) cops follow the blondes. And I was like, that's a great touch. But now this entire room of people knows your MO, dude. That's true. But I feel like his M.O. was already known because he's been plastered all over the newspapers for weeks. But I get what you're saying. I do. He is definitely that Bond criminal that's like, and next I'm going to do this. But he's still getting away with it. So, I mean, I guess that's a point to him. I think uh, the reason why I brought that up is now I would I realize I would really have loved to see this made into a series with like maybe even again I adore Kay Francis and I think she's perfect in this personally but maybe even change leading lady out of every film in the series like I would love to see this character go through robbing all these different places in all these different countries and you know a new country or a new city each film and then a different leading lady that tries to stop him or falls in love with him or something i think this character would would have made a really great series character well i do want to talk about the glitz really briefly specifically the costumes that went to an uncredited ori kelly who is just one of many masters of costuming in cinema history, let alone pre-code. But more than anything else, I love the costumes in this movie because not only are they a feat of beauty, they are also a feat of engineering. Can anybody explain to me how that velvet kind of Santa Claus looking dress that Kay Francis wears with the low back and no noticeable straps stays up on her body this entire movie. That garment is, I, I totally agree, by the way. The the garments throughout are stunning and they are so willowy. And those women are like super tall and weigh about 18 pounds approximately. And so they could, nothing they wore is anything that would ever look good on me, but it looks so beautiful on them because they look like clothes hangers. But also not just, yes, the Christmas gown, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's a whole shot in it that I'm like, I don't think that is flattering at all on your boobs or your very small boobs, but I don't care because it drapes so nicely. All of those gowns had so much tape under them. Like many fashionistas today, the level of taping across their body is insane. Like, yeah, it's the only way to hold it up. Physics is not doing it. (laughs) I was about to say something similar. Yeah, it must be a lot of Velcro. (laughs) But um, yeah, I, I really love the fashion in this film. And I'm glad that you touched on it because, you know, as soon as they announced this movie as part of the fest, we haven't really touched on the fact that it was going to be a part of the fest. But we have the fashions of the TCM Film Festival um, 
lecture every year. So it's not an official TCM event, but a, a lot of the people who love going to the fest love attending those lectures. And I had never seen any of these lectures. They really talk about all of the different films that are a part of the fest and the fashion of those films. And this year, Jewel Robbery was going to be one of the discussed films. And of course, the second I found that out, I bought tickets to go to this lecture for the first time. I had never gotten the chance to hear to hear anything about fashion and, and film as part of the, the film fest, but I was I really, really wanted to hear all about these gowns, all about the jewels. I've heard that in past lectures that have discussed jewel robbery, there's even some like jewels from the film displayed, which I can't even tell you how amazing it would be to see anything from that film in person. I, I just want to mention as well, I'm a collector. I collect, you know, posters and jewelry myself. I have only seen one poster from this film at auction. So this is a this is a rare one, but yeah, I can't I'd be so over the moon to see the the costumes and the jewels and I can't and I'm so sad about it. Well, I also want to throw out that this movie also shows that off very well thanks to its cinematographer Robert Curley, who ended up dying before the year was out from meningitis. And I also want to give a shout out to the director of this movie, William Dieterle. This was one of his earliest English language films. He had pro previously been working in, in Germany, making German films and actually escaped before the, the Nazis took over and was a huge director of Kay Francis's films. He would do this. He would also do The White Angel. He'd do a couple of, of her films and then most famously would be known as the director of stuff like Portrait of Jenny and Love Letters with Jennifer Jones. And his career ended up being, he was, he was effectively graylisted by the blacklist. Not blacklisted outright, but had, had a lot of trouble getting work towards the end of the 1950s. And I think that he works really well to capture what this movie is is selling. And he, uh, let's let's talk about the end real quick. So this movie ends with, you know, the thief used... Uh, hold on. I'm totally trying to put the ending together. You know what? I'm going to let Samantha do it. Samantha, explain the ending of Jewel Robbery to us. Okay, so after the robber lures or sort of pretends, fakes out, Faux kidnaps <laughs> uh, Terry, and that he shows her all of his jewels. They agree to meet in Nice, which is uh, just outside of Monaco, Fran the French Riviera, the day after tomorrow. And Terry, of course, says, "I'll go with you. Uh, I'll see. You. I'll dance with you in Nice on Thursday." And with her, she takes the jewels from the heist because shiny objects, and I totally relate. So she takes the jewels. It's incredibly uh, shocking to the robber because this has never happened to him before. He's flirted. He's had affairs with society dames as he has let on, but they've never stolen from the stealer, which which proves to be pretty comical in and of itself. And right as she's about to leave, the police swarm in on his apartment. And they sort of have a back and forth about what they're going to do because they want to be together, but she has to maintain her respectability. So what he does is he ties her up 
in order to make it look like she protested for her virtue, which again is so pre-code. I love it so much. And, you know, some very kinky references there that I won't read into too much because we're a family show. But he ties her up and he says the most beautiful goodbye. If you come to Nice with me, I'll see you then. If not, adieu. And he leaves with the jewels. And then, of course, the the police, they try to chase him. They fail. And her husband and her lover and her best friend all show up and untie Terry. And they're like, oh, you poor dear. You were totally assaulted by this brutal beast. And she, of course, plays the victim. She's like, oh, this was so traumatic. I cannot, you know, go on with life. I need to get away. I think I'll go to Nice I think I need a long rest, a long vacation. I'll be there on the first possible train. And she breaks the fourth wall in this perfect moment. She shishes the audience because, of course, the audience knows what she's actually going to do in Nice. And then it fades to black, which this is, of course, the most like in-your-face obvious ending that you could possibly do. But it's hard not to love it. It's so interesting to me because it's 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 unusual in a good way, in my opinion. What do you guys think of the ending? The part I enjoyed most was actually um, what Samantha just referenced in terms of Kay's character. She's gone over to his place to sort of confront him. And there's been all this back and forth. And then he discovers when she leaves that she has stolen from him. And his hands are tied because obviously he can't go to the police because she's stole stolen goods from him that moment was the most interesting story bit they had it was the most interesting character moment and it was the first time that i was like oh yes see this movie does understand that k francis is a villain it's known it the whole time this has been a villain origin story except for then they cut that off at the knees like two minutes later because she's literally at the bottom of the stairs and she just has this oh no i can't do it and so she starts to go back to return it to him even before the police show up which i was like oh dang it that was the one thing i was like cheering on but i actually didn't get any feeling that she was he was needing to tie her to save any face about her being compromised sexually i thought it was entirely because you know she'd already had one moment with the cops when she was under suspicion because all these jewels had been found in her possession and i thought it was just an alibi of you were not involved in the robbery and look you're here and held against your will it's fully possible that it was both or more one than the other but um i agree with you there i believe his his words i'm sorry i I've seen this movie so much. His words were, uh, this is the only way to return you to respectability because she's still at this point, at least as she says, she hasn't made up her mind whether she wants to meet him in Nice or not. She says she needs time to think. She can't run away with him right this second. So he says, this is the only way to return you to respectability and give you time to think. And that's what he says as he ties her up. So I do agree with you. I totally think that it's going to clear her name. Obviously she's going to look like the victim of a crime and not a criminal whatsoever. And 
And he also gives her back the ring finally. So she's able to keep it and explain how she kept it and how she, she came by it. So I think that ties everything up for lack of a better phrase in a nice little bow for her and sets her up to meet him and have an affair with him. I think too, it ends very similar to another pre-code that I'm, if memory serves, came out the same year, Redheaded Woman. Redheaded Woman ends with Jean Harlow getting what she wants. She's still allowed to be this wanted woman. And I do feel that that's where the feminism, the feminist positivity that tends to come from pre-codes is best exhibited in that Terry doesn't have to apologize or be brought low. She's just allowed to go do what she wants wants. And I do think that is very sex positive. And I think it's awesome to see, even if it does mean that none of the characters have learned anything. But I think it works. Yeah, I have to say that's one of the things I love most about this movie is how sex positive it is, how forward it is, how really freeing it is for all of the characters involved. Like you feel that they're free to do what they want. And while that might not always be the right thing, morally, I love that there's no inhibitions, no morality of, you know, they really need to think about their actions. No one's judging them. So you can see them in their fullest self, whether that be good or bad. Well, I can't say that Jewel Robbery is my favorite, but it is worth a watch. Time It With Trouble in Paradise. I think they're a great double feature for you to get the best of Kay Francis and awesome costumes and all of that. Uh, Samantha Ellis, final takeaways on Jewel Robbery. Let me first say I have not seen Trouble in Paradise. I've heard of it. And the fact that you're drawing any similarities, I obviously need to see it. It's brilliant. You should watch it. Yeah. So definitely adding that to my watch list right now. But in addition to that, I mean, as far as Jewel Robbery goes, like I said, I definitely feel it's not for everyone. But if you love you know, the witty sexual chemistry of pre-code films. If you love pre-code in general, if you love costumes, if you love jewelry, if you love William Powell and his sexiness and his wit, and you love Kay Francis and her bubbly self, you're going to like this movie if you don't read into it too much. It's a very surface level film, but it depends on how you consume cinema as far as whether you will really like it. You know, if you see it as escapist romantic fluff, then then you'll enjoy it. If you read into it, you're you're going to see the flaws in the gem. So, it's it's a little bit complex there, but it doesn't have to be. You can take it in however you see fit. It's my favorite because it checks all the boxes for me. Gray Clark, what are your final thoughts on Jewel Robbery? I think if it sounds like it could be a delightful romp for you, knowing what we know, then take it on. I think, yeah, a lot of people like things where they... Whatever, that sounds dismissive. I am not mad that I watched it. How's that? <laughs> uh, I, I love that we can not like something and express it. So feel feel free uh, to send us your thoughts on whether you love or hate Jewel Robbery or Kay Francis or William Powell, you can send them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. But that's going to close us out for this edition. Samantha Ellis, where can fans find to get in touch with you, read your work? 
all of that? Well, my main blog is at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. I'm taking a little bit of a hiatus at the moment, but you can find some more of my up-to-date work at classicmoviehub.com, where you'll find my Cooking with the Stars posts every month. And you can follow me on Twitter at classicfilmgeek. And what's new with you, Drea Clark? Where can fans find and get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I have a contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya? And you can find me over at my classic film blog, journeysandclassicfilm.com, or you can read my contemporary television essays and writings at IndieWire.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. As always, you can listen to Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcast, ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. We're on Stitcher Radio, Player FM, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Help us out and leave us a rating and a review. And we're also on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. If you want to support the podcast with your hard-earned dollars and get access to hosts of additional audio bonus podcasts, and a mess of pins that we have. I have pins coming out of every drawer. Then consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get access to a host of bonus uh, interviews that I've done. My most recent ones are with actress Kelly Garner talking about Marilyn Monroe. William Bibiani and I did our latest Based on a True podcast episode looking at LA Confidential. And we always have more stuff going up over there. So that's patreon.com slash ticklish biz so next time we are actually saying goodbye to the world of tcm for the moment and we are hoping to get an unnamed guest on this podcast we have a couple of possibilities we're waiting for scheduling so by the time this comes out that will have already been decided and recorded so you'll just have a mystery episode to listen to next time that's my spooky voice (laughs) uh till then bye